Welcome to Boiling Point. 46% of Australians experience a mental health disorder once in their life. One eighth of Australians are on antidepressants and eight Australians take their own lives every day. You can tell the mental health situation in this country is dire. However, you might have heard of a potential light at the end of the tunnel. Psychedelics seem to be just the answer we all have been waiting for. What are they capable of and do they really hold what they promise? Listen in to the story about psychedelics and medical treatment in just a moment. Welcome back to Boiling Point, the weekly science show on Eastside 89.7 FM. Tonight in the studio, it's your host, Kat, and I'm chatting to Dr. Dilara Bacecci, who's a research fellow in neuropsychopharmacology at the George Institute in Sydney. But Dilara actually prefers to say that she's a neuroscientist who specializes in drugs. And before we start, a little content warning. This podcast will discuss topics of mental health and suicide. Some people might, might find parts of this content confronting or distressing. And if this material raises any concern for you, please contact Lifeline or Beyond Blue. And we will add the numbers to the um, post of our new podcast episode. Welcome to the show, Dilara. Hi, Kat. It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, let's jump right into it. Um, what's the mental health situation in Australia at the moment? Yeah, um, so the figures change based on where you get your statistics from, but mental illnesses are very common in Australia and they can have significant impacts on quality of life. Based on the Australian Institute for Health and Welfare, about 45% of Australian adults will be affected by mental illness at some point in their life. You know, that's almost half. So mental illness is something that affects all of us. Um, and I guess when you think of mental illness, the most common disorders are anxiety, mood disorders such as depression and substance use disorders. When you say 45% of Australians will be affected um, by mental health disorder in their life, I guess that means at any point in their life, and it doesn't mean it has to be something chronical, like something long-term, but it's just at, at any point in life that will experience, 45% will experience something like that. Yes, Kat, that mm. at one point in your life, this is something that will affect you, and that about one in five Australians will deal with a chronic mental illness um, in the past 12 months of when this survey was taken. Right, that is definitely a pretty high number. So um, do you think the pandemic has changed or worsened the situation in any way? It's interesting with the pandemic because it's affected everyone um, and it's affected everyone differently and there are silver linings from it. But in by majority, um, the data suggests that, and this data is from the Mental Health Commission of New South Wales that I'm um, referencing today. Um, it found out that overall COVID-19 negatively impacted people's lives and well-being, um, with 61% of residents reporting their mental health was negatively impacted in 2021. And this is a jump from 55% in 2022. And it's uh, affecting people disproportionately where younger adults aged 18 to 29 are more negatively impacted. But in saying this, some people did have a positive impact from the pandemic, where, for example, being able to work from home and spend more time with their family. Um, but then we, when we look at the statistics of people seeking help, that also demonstrates how it has impacted um, 
our mental health. And so data from the Institute of Health and Welfare saw a 25% jump in the number of people seeking mental health services, while Beyond Blue reported spikes for requests for help um, with each lockdown. Yeah, that is quite a significant change for sure. And you mentioned before that there is a bit of a um, silver lining. Is that just the number of people that I think you said 25% who enjoyed spending more time with their families? Or do you think there's any other positive aspect coming from that? Um, there has been a general trend towards normalizing in destigmatizing mental health for the last decade. Uh, in Australia's long-term national health plan, mental health was listed as one of the four key pillars. So mental health and suicide prevention are at the top of the government's health priorities. But the pandemic has highlighted the issues with our current mental health system, primarily that the demand outstrips the supply with about a six to 12 month wait time to see a psychologist or psychiatrist being common. And when I say it highlighted the issue, um, it kind of got to the point where it couldn't be ignored. So that's one of the silver linings to come out of the pandemic is that it's, it's you know, shined the flashlight on this mental health problem to the point where it can't be ignored. And now we're seeing more resources being put towards it, which is, which is great. Yeah, that sounds really good for sure. And I also have a feeling that it is um, in society is much more common to talk about mental health issues. That's at least my personal impression, obviously not scientifically based, but um, that it is uh, people are not as afraid or maybe embarrassed to share their mental health issues with others, even at work. And it's, um, yeah, it seems to be much more of a normal thing, like, oh, I had the flu, like, oh, yeah, I had a period of depression would you agree that's that this is the case I think it's normalizing the data shows that people still aren't completely open there are still hold, people holding back and not um, you know seeking help when they need help but there has definitely been an increase and it's a funny thing because we don't think of people less who use insulin to regulate you know their blood sugar and it should be the same with mental health like because someone is using medication to help regulate their neurotransmitters and their mood isn't something they should be embarrassed about. Yeah definitely for sure so um, yeah you've pretty impressively um, outlined that the mental health situation is well pretty pretty serious in Australia, I'm sure worldwide, especially due to the pandemic. Um, but there has always been, there have always been underlying mental health issues. So, well, conventional mental health treatment is usually um, psychotherapy and um, medication, but apparently from what you're saying, it's not very efficient. What's, what's the problem there? Why can't that be fixed as easily as giving someone um, insulin? Yeah, uh, good question. I think that's a question everyone is asking. Um, and the data does show that only about half the people on antidepressants report clinical improvement. Um, and these medicines that we use, are the most common being selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs, which people might have heard of that term. Um, these were invented about 50, 60 years ago, based on our understanding of mental health at the time as being uh, you know, th these drugs increase your serotonin, which some people colloquially refer to as the happy hormone. Mm -hmm. And back in that day, in really severe cases, you would see that people who were depressed had low levels of serotonin. But this is, um, it doesn't capture what's happening in everybody. It's, you know, we're seeing such high rates of mental illness, and this doesn't explain the story um, 
our current mental health treatments are based on a simplified understanding of neurochemistry. And like additionally, these medications have limitations. They have really significant side effects and they take quite a long time to start working, about a month. And in that time, you know, uh, it's not uncommon for the doctors to warn you that it might get worse before it gets better. And what's appearing is that, you know, mental illnesses are complex and multifaceted issues. And maybe some people just need a neurochemical boost, but maybe some other people need a lifestyle change. And what they're seeing is if you pair um, the medication with the psychotherapy, they tend to be more effective. Like the medication allows you to put in the changes that you need to make to have long lasting benefits to your life. Yeah, I just want to point out here, I want to, I find this really interesting, especially you said it already, that um, this seems to be based on a very simplified view of mental health issues and um, I can just easily imagine although not being a neurologist myself but um, it sounds easy at first to be like oh you're upset you're depressed so yeah if you have more serotonin which is caused by the antidepressant medication then oh then you will be happier but I don't know I feel like you don't have to be a neurologist to kind of suspect that this might not help everyone right <laughs> like it just sounds very simple nothing's that simple is what we're all <laughs> learning every day <laughs> especially in neurology I would say um, so yeah this is the point where the psychedelics come into the game so um, it's obviously something needs to change because the treatment is not very effective. As you said, it's more effective if it's paired with um, psychotherapy, but still it could be better, right? So um, one of the silver linings on the horizon of mental health treatment uh, is the upcoming of psychedelics in medical or um, yeah, mental health disorder treatment. First of all, I would like to ask, how do you know, how did researchers get the idea to be like, oh, someone here is depressed, so why not treat it with psychedelics? It might not be the first thought that someone has. Yeah, it's funny. I guess for most of us, we've only been exposed to psychedelics as an illicit drug being associated with hippies and parties. And maybe more recently, um, the term microdosing is something you've come across with regards to Silicon Valley and tech entrepreneurs. But psychedelics were actually discovered in the Western culture in the 50s. Um, LSD was an accidental finding um, when they were trying to discover drugs that promoted, uh, I think it was birth related or um, yeah, I think to promote um, labor, labor promoting drugs. Um, and the scientist who discovered it accidentally exposed himself to LSD. He, the story is he got a little bit on his finger and maybe touched his mouth. And then he proceeded to have the world's first psychedelic trip. And this is Albert Hoffman. Um, and in that time, I guess people started to, it's very rare for humans to take a substance that alters their fundamental understanding of reality. And I guess they clocked on that this is quite a good tool for us to explore how the mind works. And initially, I think it was actually um, being explored to mimic psychosis because it mimics kind of those symptoms. There's a lot going on, disorganized thought. Um, and then its therapeutic uses came into play after that. Okay, that's very interesting. That makes much more sense now. So um, what are psychedelics exactly? Yeah, uh, when I refer to psychedelics, there are, there's a big umbrella term that kind of includes any mind-altering drug, while the classic psychedelics are things like 
um, LSD, uh, psilocybin from magic mushrooms. These are the main ones. And these are drugs that expand your consciousness um, and they're associated with the hallucinatory effects and changes in mood. But under that larger umbrella of psychedelics, uh, we also include things like MDMA, which is um, people might know more colloquially as ecstasy, that party drug, and there's also ketamine. Right, okay. And um, how can you sum up how they work in a very um, late-term way? Or I know this is very complicated, but um, (laughs) is there anything they all have in common other than they're altering our perception of the world? Or, um, yeah, do they also have some um, chemical mechanism in common? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, So all of these drugs, or at least the classic psychedelics, um, they all work through your serotonin 5-HT2A receptor. And that's just a bunch of letters and numbers being thrown at you. Um, So, you know, in your brain, you have a whole host of serotonin receptors and they have different functions. And this specific receptor, when targeted, happens to induce these psychedelic effects, which are, you know, the hallucinations, the changes in mood. My favorite psychedelic effect is called synesthesia, which is a mixing of senses. So in your brain, you're getting, um, you know, all of your wires kind of being lit up and you get some cross communication. So you can do things like taste music or hear color. That's pretty crazy. I have heard about it before. So this can be like a permanent, I don't know, how do you call it, permanent disorder that you can be born with, right? Yeah, I mean, not necessarily a disorder, I guess. For some people, it's just a a feature of their mind. And it's very common with, I think, letters. Like for some people, certain words or letters will have be associated with a certain color. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. So um, one concept that is being explored at the moment in a, on a research uh, basis is the uh, psychedelics assisted therapy. What does that mean and what are the results so far? Yeah, okay. So um, psychedelic assisted therapy is where the psychedelic drug, typically psilocybin from magic mushrooms, is being paired with therapy. So it's being given under um, clinical supervision. Um, I'll lay out the treatment for you. So there'll be prep sessions where after a patient is selected based on um, criteria, they will have a few sessions with a therapist, which will prime the patient and get them ready for um, receiving the drug. And then they'll have a dosing session where um, the patient will receive the drug and they will have two therapists accompanying them in a visually aesthetic room. So it's this, it's actually so funny in the hospital where it's like a regular hospital and then you'll go into this certain section and it's just this beautiful room with rugs and couches and natural light streaming in. And um, they try and make it as homely, as comfortable as possible. And the patient receiving the medication will have eye shades and earmuffs on and will be guided through the treatment and it's it's, it's a quite a high dose of psychedelics that can be quite challenging for the patient where it does I mean they try and use words to describe it but it's one of those things like it's being described as ineffable it's actually very difficult to describe in words what they experience Um, they'll relive past memories and you know they'll meet people they've never met before and you know travel through time and space Um, and after that treatment they will have integration sessions with one of the therapists which is trying to make sense of what they experienced in that dosing session and um, 
this is where all of the work happens and it's putting in those behavioral changes to let go of their trauma or their negative experience and build sort of a stronger relationship with themselves and their surroundings. How long does the actual trip last? Uh, with psilocybin, it's about six to eight hours. Okay, that is that is quite a long time, I guess, in the yeah. month. So what are the study results that have been found so far? Yeah, um, so psychedelics are showing great promise for the treatment of different um, mental illnesses, specifically um, depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. If I just focus on psilocybin, which is sort of the most commonly studied um, psychedelic, it has been granted breakthrough therapy status by the FDA based on its promising results. So it's it hasn't been approved um, for any indication just yet, but it's when a drug is going through the approval process, you usually start by giving it in a small sample population, a small number of people. And if it goes well, you start to increase those populations and you go through different phases. And along the way, this, so psilocybin assisted therapy has shown so much promise that it's been given breakthrough status to fast track the approval. And this is based on the results showing just really remarkable um, results. I'll just pull up the numbers so I don't butcher these. But basically what they're seeing in these early stage results, and I highlight that, is so from one to two treatment sessions, they're getting these large reductions in symptoms in some people, about 60%. And they're working in a high proportion of respondents, about 60 to 80% of respondents, sorry, of people. Um, And they're seeing a rapid response. You know, we're seeing results in 24 hours. And this is compared to SSRIs, which can take up to a month to work. And in some of these early studies, the results are long lasting where, you know, a 12 months later, some people are reporting that they are still getting benefits from those initial one to two treatments. Yeah, wow, that's very impressive. Um, so that actually means that so far it has not been approved. So you cannot go to your GP or to your um, psychologist and be like, hey, that sounds really good. I heard about this new psychedelics therapy. So there will still be, it will still be some time. Any idea? Like, do you have any estimate how long that will take till will be let's say, commercially available as a treatment? Uh, So with MDMA, so MDMA for PTSD treatment has been a little bit ahead of the game, and that's currently finishing its phase three trial, which is the last phase, and that's predicted to be... um, well, it all depends on how the studies actually go. But if the study is promising and the results are promising, um, that could be available mid next year. Psilocybin, if it's um, just as effective and, you know, it passes the parameters for safety and efficacy, um, it'll be a, probably available a few, a couple years after that. So it's still a few years away. Okay. But yeah, it sounds all pretty promising. But I have to say, um, I guess it's not rare that you get critical voices there as well who are like, that sounds way too good to be true. Like what I'm thinking of, for example, is that there's this story or this fear, I guess, that if you, um, that not everyone might respond this positively, right? And that um, I think you said that during this, the trip, the effect is that the brain brain is being rewired. But what guarantees us that the brain won't be rewired in the wrong way? Yes. Um, yeah, so that is how psychedelics 
they think are having their effects. So it's multifaceted in the sense that it reduces your emotional response during the treatment. Um, so you can sort of bring up these traumatic events or memories into a safe space and work through them. But simultaneously, you know, biologically, because I'm a neuroscientist and I thought the same thing, like looking at this, I was like, this sounds too good to be true. And then when I went in deeper, um, it was actually fascinating to see the underlying neurobiology. So psychedelics are through, they activate 5-HT2A, but then downstream they're activating BDNF, which is a neuro, um, it's a factor that increases the branching on your neurons. So it literally causes your brain to make more connections with each other. And this allows you to create new thoughts and new pathways. Um, but as you said, Kat, yes, it's, it just makes your brain more susceptible. So other things that induce this kind of activity are things like pregnancy, but it can also be traumatic experiences. And this is why when you have a traumatic event, it can kind of rewire your brain in a negative way. So what psychedelics are doing is they're creating this malleable state. I don't know if you've heard of the term neuroplasticity, yeah. um, but it refers to the original concept of plasticity. So when we think of plastics, I think of like a hard, shiny thing. But originally, plastics were um, objects that could be melted down and reformed. And it kind of comes to that idea that it can be constantly changed and recreated. Um, Sorry, can I just jump in here? I yeah. like to think in analogies a lot and or yeah. um, metaphors. And I feel like it, yeah, it reminds me of like a piece of clay that has been formed in a certain way and has dried up. And it was formed in a, yeah, often also in a negative way by traumas. And then the psilocybin treatment would kind of like um, make it soft again. So it can be reshaped. Is that Absolutely, Kat. That is perfect. Ah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it makes your brain, you know, malleable. It makes your brain soft clay again. Um, and it's actually so funny with psychedelics. It's uh, it mimics what's happening in a child's brain. So they think that children are like constantly having a psychedelic experience. And it was so funny visiting my friend the other day who has a baby, a newborn, and the baby just started like staring at the corner of the room and talking to, you know, something or someone that wasn't there. And I was like, yes, psychedelic baby brain. It's happening. <laughs> um, funny. But going back to, I guess, our point is, yes. Yeah, so your brain's become more malleable. Uh, so it can be shaped into a worse condition and this is why it's being paired with psychotherapy and it's it's not being advised to use psychedelics on their own um, and it's not going to be effective for everybody regardless of how effective the um, therapist is like psychedelics just aren't for some people and they're definitely not advised for anybody who has a history or potential for schizophrenia um, and these studies are early stage and they're currently being used um, sorry, they're currently being tested on a highly selected population. So how um, applicable they're going to be to everyday people is still to be determined. Yeah, okay. But that also that makes a lot of sense to me now because it means that the, the therapy is actually not just like a nice add-on to, to the whole treatment. It is actually an essential part, right? Because you need the therapy then after the, the treatment to reshape the brain in the right way and to go through those past traumas in, in the appropriate healing way. Is that right? That's the current understanding we have. I mean, it's also, we haven't, no one's actually run the studies of just psychedelics without the treatment. So 
maybe one day it'll get to that point and we'll find out that it's not necessarily, but the current understanding is that the therapy is crucial to the benefit of the treatment. And this is actually, um, you just reminded me, along the way of um, during the treatment, they'll take different measures. And one thing they measure is mystical experience. And people who have a higher report of mystical experience have greater and longer lasting benefits. So there's a correlation there between how much the person is um, based on their subjective effects. Yeah, okay. That's very interesting. I'm just imagining it when um, then afterwards, after the treatment, then everything's basically on the surface. And now it's the a job of the patient and the psychologist to work through it. Um, that might be quite a bit of trauma coming up, right? Like even smaller traumas, which might have shaped us. So I feel like that would be a whole workload to go through at the end of that. Yeah. And I think it's for people who've gone through normal psychotherapy, that's kind of what they're aiming to do as well is to there's these underlying issues that need to be addressed and sometimes it can just be very difficult to bring those up um so psychedelics in psychiatry are just they're a tool um to be used with therapy and how did um how did most patients in those studies describe their experience the trip itself did they find it scary or just interesting and enlightening what were the descriptions of that um i think there's probably a mixture of reports um, and I guess because this is early stage study people who are signing up for these studies want to be engaged and they're probably more likely to have a positive experience because of that but I think some of my fascinating reports are from uh, these the smoking cessation studies so uh, psychedelics showing they show promise for treatment of addiction and substance use disorders um, and to the point where people will take sorry, undergo psychedelic assisted psychotherapy and quit smoking. And this can last, you know, six months where after literally one treatment, they just don't do it anymore. And there's a couple quotes that I love. Um, one is, this is from someone who underwent psilocybin therapy and quit smoking. They said, you know how gargoyles look crouched down with their shoulders hunched? That's how I felt and saw myself. It was powerful and disgusting. I can still see it now, that hideous coughing gargoyle whenever I picture myself as a smoker. So the psilocybin therapy in this example gave that person a new perspective of their behavior and allowed them to then change. Yeah, that is very impressive. Uh, we have to uh, wrap up here slowly, but I have one last question for you. What is your hope for the near future in terms of the psychedelics-assisted therapy? Where would you like it to go in the next few years? That's a big question. Um, <laughs> so initially, I'm just hoping that there's reduced stigma and more funding for these therapies that are showing so much promise. But additionally, um, it's not just, you know, it's not going to be just the drug or the therapy. It's going to be this multifaceted approach. And we need to set up the infrastructure to set up, you know, like a supportive base to make sure these treatments are accessible and affordable because, um, you know, the, the pandemic highlighted that we have a shortage of therapists in general, but I can see there's a lot of research coming through and psychedelics are one of the tools, but there's also so much cool research happening with digital technology. Like I've been seeing things about music therapy, art therapy. Um, and like one of my dream is that 
children start seeing therapists the same way they start seeing dentists you know you check in you have a formalized check-in once a year um, and then it just it's normalized you start learning the language and the process to the point where you know for a lot of people the first time they need to see a therapist it's a very daunting situation well if you're seeing a therapist regularly it's just normal health care yeah, that sounds good. That's definitely a very nice outlook into the future. Well, um, yeah, we have to finish up here. But Dilara, thanks so much for being my guest today. Thank you so much for having me, Kat, and letting me nerd out on psychedelics and science. <laughs> All the best for your research and your science communication work in the future. Thanks, Kat. Thanks for listening to Boiling Point. We will be back with a new science story next week. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Boiling Point on your podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. But before we say goodbye, um, Dilara picked a song for us called At the River by Groove Armada. So please enjoy the song and bye for now. <laughs>